Why do we humans create barriers? I was thinking about medieval castles, at least the one in my imagination, where there's a um, a moat around it, and then the moat is filled with uh, animals with sharp teeth, right? Um, and then there's some, some guys with crossbows on top, and there's the drawbridge and stuff that gets to dictate who gets to come in and who gets to leave. And those barriers don't exactly say, come on in, make yourself at home, right? It's kind of the point of barriers. It's a protection. In that period of time, it made sense because those barriers that you'd put around a castle, or at least the one in my imagination, was for self-preservation, right? Uh, the barriers preserved the lord and the lady of the castle and their lives and the lives of anyone else who is also within the the fortification it um, protected their stuff and it protected their position within the land because if they died don't have much of a position anymore right now in our modern context we have plenty of barriers that we also create for self-preservation right we have things like uh doors door locks fences um, we have security alarm systems. Uh, we have at Walt Disney World, we have security uh, who is there to ensure the safety of the guests and kind of act as a form of barrier, especially as you go through those really fun and um, uh, way more efficient um, pass-throughs now. Uh, I think that those things are awesome. But I was also thinking about uh, passcodes that we use for the different websites, right? And um, some of you uh, use huge 35 character um, passcodes. Some of you use one seven letter uh, passcode, uh, but those passcodes are there for safety, security, right? It's to preserve our safety, our wealth, our position. That's what barriers help with. Barriers make us feel safer. At least that's kind of the goal, right? Now, how much do you like it though when there is a barrier that stands between you and whatever you want. Not quite as helpful as the other kind of barrier, right? Though when barriers act like that, like say over the last few years and we had to make reservations to go into the parks, like that was a barrier. And at first it was uh, explained how it was a safety and health barrier and then a staffing barrier and now it's kind of just a barrier. Um, and it stops you from being able to do all the things you want to do. You want to go ride Trance and I have to get in a virtual queue. Barrier. Now, there are reasons behind all of that, but some barriers make us feel safe because we are getting the benefit from that barrier. But when there is a barrier that we do not get the benefit of the safety, we despise that barrier. We are frustrated by that. So now I want to think, I want you to think about you and God. Do you ever feel that there is a barrier between the two of you? Process that for a moment. When do you experience a barrier in a relationship with him if you have one? Is there a specific moment in time that comes to your mind? What do you believe God thinks of whatever barrier has ever existed between the two of you? Tonight, we're going to discover one of the most important realities of Good Friday. And we're going to do this by engaging both our hearts and our minds. See, Good Friday, the morning after Jesus and his disciples had come together just the night before for a beautiful Passover meal. 
And out of that, the next morning comes the darkest moment in the history of the cosmos. A moment displaying how far God would go to bring home back to humanity. But to begin to comprehend this, we need to really return to the beginning of all of it. In the book of Genesis, we discover a world without barriers. There were no barriers between God and humanity. There was a place on planet Earth, a region called Eden, and in the midst of Eden was this garden that God had, had orchestrated in such beauty. It was meant to be this first temple environment where God's presence dwelled with the human creation and the place where God's presence rested with humanity, where humanity could enjoy God and God could enjoy all that he created with them, that they could co-labor, they could partner together. No barriers. There's no moat, no high walls, no passcodes, no pointy teeth. The, the, just, I mean, even the two human beings, right? They're, they're not even wearing clothes. Like, like there's no barriers whatsoever. No hiding. No self-preservation. You didn't have to preserve yourself. Could you imagine? We can't, right? We can't imagine that because every, since the moment we drew our first breath until the minute that we take our last one, we live in a world where we are vulnerable as human beings. Where we are vulnerable from what other people could do or say to us two realities far beyond our ability to control, we're vulnerable. And so we only know a life of barriers. We express that we want freedom, but only to a certain extent that it kind of makes us still feel safe. So to be that truly safe and secure that you have literally nothing to hide from anyone, most of all God. And then humanity chooses knowledge on their own terms. And they rebel against the holy God. And they rebel against intimacy with their creator. And so in Genesis chapter 3, verses 22 through 24, it says this. This is after God has kind of spoken to both the serpent, who is the deceiver, and to the man and the woman explaining to them what, uh, how this is going to be playing out and what, what the consequences would be for their actions. And it says, there, it says, Sorry, verse 22. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also the tree of life and eat and live forever. It says, Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to walk the ground from which he was taken he to work the ground. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed a cherubim, which is an angelic messenger warrior. And their job is protection. Their job is barrier. And a flaming sword that turned everywhere to guard the way to the tree of life. So this is at the very beginning of our story. Our rebellion is humanity and what God does in the midst of this. Now, humanity is sent out of the garden space, which seems a lot like God is crafting a barrier between himself and us. But notice that before the man and the woman were taken out and placed outside of the garden, a barrier had already been erected. When humanity took 
from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. What that means is they, they took on their own the desire out of their deep desire to live apart from God. They wanted to do things their own way. They wanted to do things in their own time. They wanted to do things in a way that made sense to them. They wanted wisdom, but not connected to God. They wanted it on their own terms. But that's not the way humanity was supposed to receive wisdom. We're supposed to receive it in connection to God, not apart from him. And so, like a computer system that is overloaded, they were overloaded with something that they weren't meant to receive in this way. This isn't what they were programmed for. And so, in this space, they are now separated from God and they know too much for where they are at in their, without the intimacy of relationship with God. And so God says, we need to take them out of here because if they eat of my own life force, if they eat from the tree of my own life, then they'll live forever. What they would experience is a life of eternal separation from me. What they would experience is a life of half-life, never really knowing what it looks like to be with me. This would be a broken existence. So he takes them out and puts them away, puts them outside and says, go and work outside of this space so you're not near what could ultimately lead to even more destruction for you. So God's barrier of the cherubim, the flaming sword, these are, these are kind of weird images. You, I mean, if you're thinking of a flaming sword and what it looks like for it to turn all directions, so it's like doing some backflips and then some loopy loops and like it's like going all the directions i guess but we know what that means you don't get to come in here anymore and so god's barrier is actively though protecting humanity from taking what would only lead to further devastation and the cherubim is standing in the gap not punishing humanity but protecting humanity from itself but this barrier didn't stop God's desire from being near to his creation, right? And so you fast forward in the story of the scriptures uh, for centuries and centuries, and you land at the nation of Israel, specifically the Israelites, as they are wandering through the desert, trying to find their way to the land of promise, promised to them by Yahweh. And so in this space, as they are wanderers, God makes himself known even there and says, Build me a dwelling place to go along with you. I'm going to camp out with you. I'm going on the road with you. And so the tabernacle is created. And then when the nation of Israel finally gets into the land of promise after a bunch of um, crazy antics, they make it there. And then after some centuries go by, God, God's desire to have a permanent dwelling space. As they are building down roots, he says, I want roots too here. Put me at the center of your capital so that all would know that I am your God and you are my people. But in both of these spaces, both the tabernacle and the temple, it's not the garden. It's not perfect intimacy. It's intimacy in the midst of a broken and fallen world. And so what you would have is you would have three different places. You might remember this when we talked about the tabernacle as well as the temple. There was the outer courts of the temple or the tabernacle where anybody was allowed to go, foreigners, uh, women, uh, men, anyone who is not a priest is able to go into the outer courts area. Now, inside the actual temple building, that was a space exclusive reserved for the priests. And so the priests could go in there as they will into what was known as the holy place. But inside the holy place, there was another barrier. 
and that separated the Holy of Holies from the holy place. And in this picture, what we are getting is God is saying the, the holy place as a whole represents earth. But then there's this holy of holies that represents the place of heaven, divine intimacy, God's dwelling place. And there's a separation. And would you know it? This separation is marked by cherubim. It was a veil, a curtain, but not like the curtains that you have at home. At least I would imagine you don't have um, curtains that are five inches thick. I mean, think about that. A five inch thick curtain, 60 feet tall. Not like what you probably have at home, right? Okay, so they have this gigantic curtain that took a dozen men just to set up over the course of a week when they were installing it. Like it's that kind of a curtain. It was weaved in, and into it was weaved this artistic symbol of a cherubim, of a cherubim that is separating the Holy of Holies from the holy place, separating the place that is representing earth from the place that represents the heavens. Now, these artistic representations of cherubim represented the, divi the divide between heaven and earth, reminding God's people that this place is not home. This is not Eden. We are separated from God's presence. And not only were they meant to be symbolic in meaning that God was trying to protect humanity from God's life, but even further now, we discover that God, that this represents God protecting humanity from his unfiltered presence when they were broken and sinful, marred. The nation would be reminded by knowing that this veil exists of the words that God said to a guy named Moses way back in the early days. When he's telling Moses how he is supposed to lead the Israelites and what they're supposed to believe and what they're supposed to be like. And he says when he is instructing him about the tabernacle, about this holy of holies and this holy place, he says, tell Aaron, your brother, who's been just tapped as being the high priest for all of the nation. He says, not tell your brother Aaron not to come at any time into the holy place inside the veil. Not ever, but at any time he wants into the veil before the mercy seat that is on the ark so that he may not die. For I will appear in the cloud over the mercy seat. Now, that sounds intense. I think that's probably the best word to describe God's glory from our very limited ability to conceive of language of something as incredible as his glory. God's presence is intense. This is why the high priest like Aaron and all the high priests who come after him would only be able to go and pass through the veil, past the cherubim, into the Holy of Holies one day a year on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. And they could pass through, leaving the earth space, entering into the heaven space where God's presence is, but only after an intense ritual and um, ritual and spiritual purification process. And it was so intense, you may have heard this before, and I think I mentioned it when we were in the temple series, but it went, it was so intense that if this high priest went through all the processes, but his heart was still in a rebellious state, that God's intensity, his glory would overwhelm him and he would wind up dead. So they would wrap a they would wrap a rope with bells around the high priest as he would go through the veil so if they stopped hearing the bells and they heard a thump 
they could pull him in and pull him back. That's intense. Now you hear that, and if you're like me, that sounds like, what's wrong with God? Like, come on. Like, give the guy a break, you know? But see, what happens, this isn't the image of a vengeful, angry, wrathful God. It's the, the image of an intense God. Think about the sun. Imagine that you were able to go hang out on the sun. Okay, there's a few barriers in the way, right? Between you and the sun. One is space, so you would need a rocket that can get you to space. But if, even if you had a rocket that could make the journey to the sun, which would take a long time and it's something beyond what we have, uh, you would get there and what would happen? You'd die. You would die really, really fast because of its intensity. The sun is too intense for our frail human existence. Unless... Unless something changed. But you see, the sun in this scenario is not bad. The sun is not bad. It's not the, sun, it's not the sun's fault when we get sunburnt, right? It's not the sun's fault if when you get really close to it, you die. Like that, the sun's just being the sun. It's just doing its old sun thing, right? It's filled with intensity that you just can't handle. But what would happen if you had a ship that couldn't be damaged by the sun, if you had a suit that made it possible for you to go and walk on it, which I don't think is possible, but let's say you could, then the barrier of distance could actually be removed and you could experience its presence up close and personal. The sun isn't bad. It's not angry. It's not wrathful. It's not looking to do anything. But for God, he is looking to do something, but it's not to vanquish. It's not to annihilate. His desire is to be near. But this distance, this holiness separation, this set-apartness is so intense. And so these cherubim exist to remind humanity that God's desire is to be with them. But this heaven and earth divide, it still exists. And for centuries, this was the consistent reminder for all of Israel. As year after year, king after king, prophet after prophet, invasion after invasion, over and over and over and over again, Israel lives unfathomably wicked. They desire to do things on their own terms. They want to be like Adam. They want to be like Eve. They want to do things on their own terms. And that's not because they are wicked. It's because they're human. And we all are that. We all naturally gravitate towards doing things our own way. We do it in our kids. We do it in our adults. And we do it any time that we are like, yeah, but I, God, I, I think my way, I think you should listen up. And so, and so darkness, until one day, the creator of the cosmos took on flesh. The creator of the cosmos takes on flesh, being born in the form of a child, raised up, teaching, performing miracles, doing unbelievable things, setting captives free, bringing life, light, and freedom everywhere he goes, wherever he goes. In a world of darkness, it's like this cosmic light just radiates from him. It's as if the Holy of Holies has now come to earth. And then one day, the day after a Passover meal, in the morning, he was brought into the temple courts. He was brought. He was brought 
from there, given a wooden cross, taken outside of Jerusalem to a mountain called the Skull, suffering the absolute most humiliating death that the Romans could come up with in crucifixion. Now, that is insanity to think about. God, the creator, doing that. But then he bore our rejection, our sinfulness, our rebellion, our desire to do things our own way, our desire to define right and wrong on our own terms, our desire to run away from God and only come back when it's convenient to us. He took that on himself. And so Jesus dies on the cross for the very reason of this moment, for this reality, for here, tonight, us. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And the earth shook and the rocks were split. Matthew records this in Matthew 27. But what a scene. This veil, this five-inch veil that meant to separate and show that humans can't be in God's presence. That we are too broken, too messed up. We can't get it right. That veil was torn from the top to the bottom. I'm from California, so I know a little bit about earthquakes, even though I've never had to survive a really bad one. But when the earth quakes, where do things separate from? From the earth up. So if a building is affected, so if you go to San Francisco and there's some historical buildings that have like some of the scars from old earthquakes that could kind of keep in place, but patch up so you can kind of see that. It's not, you, you'd, it'd be weird, really weird if you saw them coming from the top of a building down. That would be weird. They go from the bottom to the top, but not the veil. The veil was torn from the top to the bottom. The barrier between heaven and earth ripped by heaven. The distance between Yahweh and humanity absorbed by Yahweh. The divide protected by the cherubim is gone. The space reserved for a sacrifice of blood has been fully satisfied in the final sacrifice of Jesus. All of the brokenness has been undone. Not by human efforts, but by God's. The veil was torn from top to bottom. Now, there are two reasons to tear things emotionally. Uh, Grief and joy. Fair? Okay, so in the scriptures, you would often find uh, Jewish prophets and sometimes the kings who would, uh, in their deep grief over the rebellion of the people, they would say they would tear their clothes out of grief. So like you can tear things, and I'm sure like if you've ever been maybe broken up with or something like that, that was my case most of my life. And, and I would just like want to tear up pictures and things, right? Like we tear up things in grief. Now imagine that you're a lot faster than me and you're running a marathon and you're the first person to break the tape in the finish line. That's a barrier and it is broken out of joy. And this tearing of the veil is a hundred percent both. It's a hundred percent grief and it's a hundred percent joy. 
The father grieving his own son, bearing the brokenness of human sinfulness on himself. The father rejoicing because his son's death was not in vain. Humanity can finally come near. And the cherubim who were placed to protect humanity from the intensity of God's holiness and glory and life back in the garden, well, they can now go ahead and take a vacation. Because the distance between us and God is crumbled at the moment that the veil was torn. And I realize, though, in all of this, that right now you might feel separated from God. And I want to go ahead and posit there are three most likely reasons why you are feeling that way. The first is that you truly are separated from him because you have never put your faith and surrendered your life to Jesus. You never truly believed that he alone can save you, redeem you, and renew you. You feel a separation because it, it exists. See, God's not content with that separation, and you shouldn't be either. God's desire is to tear that separation from the top to the bottom. He has come to save you. You can't earn it. You can't do enough good. You can't be religious enough. You can't do it. You can only receive and trust who he is and what he's accomplished on the cross. And if that's you, I want you to spend some time tonight just simply praying about that. Talk to God. Maybe you've never talked to him before. Talk to him about it. He desires to listen. He desires to commune with you. And I would encourage you to come up and talk to some of our prayer volunteers after the gathering. They would love to journey with you as well. The second is that there might be realistically some reality in your life that is stopping you from experiencing God's nearness. A curtain has been erected, but it's not the one in the temple. It's one that has been erected by either yourself or just by life circumstances that surround you. It can be internal with sinful patterns of living. It can be things that are also internal, but were brought on by external forces, traumatic events of the past, guilt, shame. Any of these are possibilities, and I, and I know that they can be devastating on your relationship with God. But God's not, God's not content with that separation. You shouldn't be there. God's desire is to tear that separation from the top to the bottom to bring you to a holistically healthy view of who God says you are now, to restore you, to give you a new heart, to redeem you, to draw you near to himself so that you could experience true life, light, and freedom walking in the way of Jesus. And so I would invite you to spend some moments talking to God about that. And if you're like me, you might fall into the third category quite often. You don't you don't experience God's nearness often. But your separation is one that comes from simply not knowing how. How to experience it. How to draw near to him. How to practice the presence of God. You don't enjoy his presence because you don't know how. And in so many ways, that's me. But you see, what I have to believe is that God's not content with that separation and you shouldn't be either. God's desire is to tear that separation from the top to the bottom. And here's what we can be assured of. God didn't tear that veil so that we could simply intellectually believe that God wants us near. His desire is that we would experience the joy of his countenance, his face shining upon us. 
And so now I want to take us into a time of guided reflection. And so what I want to ask you to do is a lot of what we've talked about, this is a lot of content, right? But to move within our brain from our mind to our heart, it can feel like a chasm. And so what I want to do right now is remind you again of a lot of what we have just talked about, but in a way that's going to invite you into the story of the torn veil. And so what I'd like for you to do is to simply close your eyes, um, relax, nothing weird's going to happen, I promise. Um, but just put your palms on your lap face up. And all I want you to do is breathe. Just breathe and listen. I found this meditation a few weeks ago, and I thought that maybe you might be blessed by it the same way that I have been. It was the time of the evening sacrifice. The priests in Jerusalem milled around the temple grounds, preparing to offer the lamb. On a hill a few miles away, the most heinous crime ever committed was being carried out. A man, the son of man, innocent and blameless, hung, dying on a Roman instrument of torture. The king of the Jews had been rejected. This one who referred to himself as the true temple has been beaten, mocked, and crucified. And in his final moments, he cries out and he raises last. And suddenly, this massive curtain, 60 feet tall, as wide as the palm of your hand, is ripped apart by an unseen hand. The priests are speechless. How can this be? What does this mean? The rending of the veil, the tearing of this curtain, was a divine object lesson with deep and abiding meaning. The curtain had been placed between the holy place in the temple and the most holy place, the holy of holies. No one was allowed to enter into the holy of holies except the high priest once a year on the day of atonement. And only he, if he carried the blood of an unblemished animal, as a sacrifice to cover his own sins and that of all the people. For anyone else, at any other time, in any other way, to enter behind the curtain, it means certain death. No other sinner 
could enter into the holy presence of a holy God in the lamp. The curtain was a stark reminder of this truth. This curtain that would take a dozen men to move, that would fill this room, was a stark reminder that God was inaccessible. The sinful soul shall die. They remembered when Yahweh told Moses, tell your brother Abraham that he may not come whenever he wants into the holy place, behind the veil, in front of the mercy seat of the ark, or else he will die. But now, this curtain, this massive barrier between man and God has been torn. It was torn from top to bottom. This, the work of no man, God himself initiated this move. She tore the veil. He opened the way. No longer were men and women kept out from the presses of God. When Jesus died on that bloody cross, the final sacrifice was paid. The true high priest had finally come. The true Lamb of God had finally been offered. His blood had been spilled. His body had been sacrificed. The payment had been made. It is finished. The sacrificial system was fulfilled. It was done. Now, the ultimate sacrifice has already been made. All the blood of bulls and goats that had been spilled for over a millennium was only a picture of what was needed. Only a shadow of things to come. But now, the reality appeared. The price has been paid. We now have free access to the presence of a holy God. The blood of Jesus, the body slain, opens the way for all of us to enter into the Holy of Holies, the heaven place. The author of Hebrews chapter 9 says, We have boldness to enter the sanctuary through the blood of Jesus. By a new and living way, he has opened for us through the curtain. 
is flesh. There is no longer a keep out sign, no notice saying, no trespassing, nothing saying unauthorized personnel forbidden. The Lord Jesus has opened the way to God for us. Not only has he opened the way, he is the only way. Before, to enter God's presence in the Holy of Holies meant death. Now, to enter to God's presence through the death of Christ. The Apart, apart from him is death, but with him is life. Christ is the one way, the only way. Unblemished, perfect sacrifice for our sins. The tearing of the curtain was a foretaste of, a pre precursor of the destruction of the temple. And on that day, the veil was torn. In 40 years, the entire temple would be destroyed by the Roman army under Emperor Titus. Judgment was going to fall. An end would be put to the sacrificial system in the temple. The final sacrifice would be offered. The picture of God provided by the physical temple in Jerusalem had served its purpose and could now be removed. Jesus himself is the new temple. He said, destroy this sanctuary and I will rise it up in three days. But the Jews were confused, saying, This sanctuary took us 46 years to build. Will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the sanctuary of his body. So when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the statement that Jesus had made. God has come to bring home to you, to me. And we can now look forward to a future day when heaven and earth are fully reunited. I do not see a sanctuary in this home because the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its sanctuary. So, Father, we come tonight to you. All in different places, all with our own stories, all with our own things going on. All with our own weeks, our hardships, our beauties, our successes. But there's one thing we need, and it's you. 
whether we know it, whether we feel it or not, it's you. So by the power of your spirit, would you remind us that the veil is torn, that your nearness is accessible? Would you draw us near tonight and remind us that the veil was torn from top to bottom? It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.